here today with Finn Tondro. Finn, thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on here. So I first heard of, uh, well, I knew you before, but I someone brought up that you had read Middlemarch in one of my classes, and I had just finished Middlemarch myself, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that book and what made you want to read it. Yeah, so um, I guess there's always the allure of reading something from the classical canon, um, and I think I've really gotten in the second semester into more of this idea of um, reading a lot more because I come, generally what I've read in the past is a lot more, you know, historical biographies on various different people and families, and I was like, that's nice and all, but sometimes it can get boring at times or mm -hmm. long-winded, and, um, you know, maybe it's time to start incorporating stories mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. reading stories. So Some fiction. So what did you think of Middlemarch? What was your, I guess, final reaction to this book? Was it worth uh, it? It was definitely a, a saga. I really enjoyed it because right before then, um, I dipped my toes a little bit into Jane Austen's Emma. I found that plot to be kind of flat. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, Middle March was definitely refreshing in the sense that it was very complex. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I thought it was just an interesting read. I think I would have put it down if I weren't in this book club. About halfway through, I was getting a little stalled. I f it, was, it was sort of dry. I, I understand why George Eliot published it in series because, you know, I, I think somewhere in the middle it gets pretty dry and dense. But I'm glad I finished it, and I felt much differently about the main character, Dorothea, at the end Dorothea, than I did at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, I, I didn't really like her much at the beginning. I thought she was sort of whiny and annoying, yeah. honestly, at the beginning. But she's really dynamic towards the end, and she's taking control of her life. And she's uh, she's a much more rich character than she was at the beginning, I believe. Yeah, no, and I, I definitely agree. There was, there was times where I was like, really, I'm committed to a book that's about this person who is weirdly obsessed with this old completely self-obsessed guy yeah so um yeah yeah no I, I agree with you it, it definitely yeah towards the middle it got but it, it picked back up towards the end I, I believe so. so were you doing this with other people or is this just a totally independent task just totally independent That's... um yeah I mean like I said before just I've been reading a lot of 19th century novels recently I think my next one on the list is going to be um uh Mayor of Casterbridge Oh, interesting. Yeah. Never read it. We're, we're doing this book club. If you're interested, we're reading big books. Oh. And we read Infinite Jest over the summer. And then Middle March and the next one we just started is Moby Dick, which I've never oh, wow. read. Wow. And yeah. uh, Mr. Hastings is in that group. And um, Ellie in the library is in it. And we're just getting people who are interested. So we meet on yeah. Zoom every other week and just talk about the 100 pages that we read over two weeks. And it's great. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. No, no I, I would be interested. I've, I've been um, – my mom is a uh, professor at Goucher College, and one, one of her co colleagues is um, – very much focuses on Moby Dick um, as a class. So I've, oh, nice. from her descriptions, I've always been interested yeah. In reading Moby Dick at some point. So. Yeah, I mean, it started off great, and I'm surprised I've never read it before, so I'm excited to tackle another big book like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is, is English, is literature, is that your area of focus? Is that your 
it's obviously your strong suit, but is that what you want to pursue next year in college? I'm thinking not. I think um, I happen to be interested in English at this moment because I find that the English department at Gilman, at least from my experience, has been much better than the history department where um, where I normally find more interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I've been able to write an honors paper. I plan to write another honors paper in English. Um, I've really enjoyed the way the classes are set up. So, What are you writing your honors papers on? So I don't know yet. I was starting off, I, I read a bit of the Decameron, and I was thinking, you know, um, I might go back to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which I've read a couple of years ago, relook at that, um, evaluate some sort of similarity between the two, um, kind of as a very basic comparison. Um, but then increasingly I've found that it's kind of, the Decameron is kind of a slog to read. So I might go, um, I'm thinking right now, explore a little bit of Thomas Hardy. Oh, nice. Yeah. I've never read Thomas Hardy. Yeah. And I've, I've, I haven't read him either, but um, Mayor of Casterbridge is next to my list. Um, and what appeals to me so much about Hardy is that he's describing this kind of lost landscape, the landscape of Wessex. Um, and I, I, I find that very interesting. So. Are you um, are you enjoying your senior year? Are you finding, you know, especially the second semester, pretty freeing that you have a little bit more time maybe to read some of these big books and maybe do some things that you uh, you hadn't before in your Gilman experience? Uh, yes, I'm definitely finding it. Um, but I find it less of a, a matter of doing a lot of new things as um, more so um, an experience of doubling down on the things I already do and mm-hmm. really expanding upon them. So like reading, um, I've read quite a few books since the break. I'm doubling down on um, really uh, focusing on solo performance as a horn player. Oh, cool. Doubling down on um, kind of my outdoorsy side. So trying to get into running again, improving my climbing and bouldering. Oh yeah, some various other things as well. So, do you go down to the uh, rock wall down here? Yeah, uh, yeah, Hamden. Hamden, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bouldering's tough. I talked to Nick Lutsky on, on this podcast about bouldering a little bit, and uh, I had never done it before, and it's great. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I, I find that I, um, I was actually introduced through Gilman in tenth grade, and ever since I've been, um, kind of in love with the sport. I've even, you know, watched a little bit of the uh, climbing Olympics. So. Oh, nice, yeah, yeah. nice. Um, how did you get into playing the horn? That's interesting. Um, so my parents started me out very early on violin. At the age of four, I also did a little bit of dance. A little later, they introduced me to singing. So I was already, already had a fairly musical background. And then in fifth grade, um, I had the option of pursuing horn. And so I chose to do the horn. And ever since I've found that it's the ideal instrument to pursue in music because it has such a glorious tone. But at the same time, it is also much less competitive than dance or violin or singing in the sense of there's many fewer people who actually do the horn. Mm -hmm. And so I've been able to be a part of some pretty amazing orchestras um, because I've actually had a chance at competing 
on a pretty high level. So Interesting. Are there other horn players here at Gilman? Yes. Um, Zach Fader. Okay. Yeah. Mostly. And there's some others as well. But. Nice. That's awesome. I mean, I, I envy you because uh, I, I think if I could play an instrument, I'd like to learn how to play the violin and learning the violin at age four. So you can play the violin fully now, and horn's just another instrument yeah, yeah, that you right. added later yeah. on. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, and it's what's really fun about the horn, the don't go with the violin, well, not as much, is horn is really an ensemble instrument. So whether it's in a woodwind quintet or in an orchestra, um, you have an ability to work with other people. Mm -hmm. And when you get to that point, especially when there's a challenging passage that you've just mastered, but you've just barely mastered and you're around all these very talented musicians around you, it's a very powerful, powerful feeling. So So your parents' inclination to get you involved in music, you know, was was pretty spot on. I know a lot of kids and people who their parents put them into music and then they end up hating it and they want to get out. But it seems like it was the right move for you since you sound like you like it. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I think there was a, there was a period of time where, you know, it was difficult to go to violin lessons, um, both because of the competition factor, but also it was kind of forced on me. And I think horn's always been my instrument. I've held over ownership over it. So nice. Yeah. Nice. What, uh, what are you most excited about? next year when you leave Gilman, go to Harvard and start a whole new chapter in your life? It's difficult. I think I'm excited for a whole bunch of things. I think namely the academics. Um, I'm really excited to, like I said before, explore um, especially history at Harvard because I haven't really had that opportunity here or at least I haven't found um, an opportunity here that fits what I would like. And so I'm really interested to get a better sense of, do I really want to be doing history? Um, but I think on, on a larger level, you know, meeting new people, being in Boston, being right next to the BSO, mm -hmm. um, to your concerts, um, maybe do the outdoors club, mm -hmm. do some mountaineering and stuff like that. So, yeah. That's great. Now you say history is, the area of focus for you it's something that you really like and maybe you haven't you know met uh the type of class at gilman or in your high school experience that you really were looking for with history and i'm wondering a little bit about that because i'm teaching u.s history this year and i'd love to get a pulse on what maybe you were looking for what you really enjoy about history that you'd like to see you know at harvard or in the future in some of the classes that you take um, so it's hard to know what exactly I want. I, I think I definitely want something more rigorous and I've had, at least at Gilman, I've had two ends of, I've had a, a class that's very, I've either had classes that are like very, very easy mm -hmm. or very, very much focused on intricate lectures, but mm -hmm. they're also relatively easy. And so I think the, the thing that I'm lacking is rigor and kind of this idea that you need to constantly be doing um, written essay exercises because um, I think that that's that's what I've found fascinating really really taking a second look and not just saying here's the information here are the dates here are the events mm -hmm. but what's behind them what are the larger factors and I feel like 
I mean, I've, I've been able to get that through reading a lot of books. Um, right. And these English yeah. papers that you're talking about are totally self-directed. And I think yeah. history, you know, in my experience teaching this class this year, so much of what I've enjoyed about it is my own personal ability to just sit down for a couple hours and dive into something that's not necessarily something yeah. that I'm going to take into the classroom, you know, totally, because there is sort of this timeline inherent to the course yeah. that you you don't have to follow, but yeah. it makes sense to follow. And I think thinking about my students, I don't want to just dive into one thing for two weeks. Yeah. Um, I, I like to keep it sort of broad and survey like, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, and, and what you're talking about is maybe doing a deeper dive into yeah, subjects. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's anyone's fault. I think it's just the, the nature of high school academics in the sense that they have to cover a broad scope um, in a classic history, it's generally, I mean, in the case of like making modern Europe, it's like what? It's like almost a thousand years. Like there's no way to actually take a step back and really analyze what's happening mm -hmm. behind the details and the dates and the events. What period of time or what figures are you most excited about exploring on a deeper level maybe, or, or have you explored on a deeper level that you really are into? So I've read, so generally the medieval European era, um, I've read several books on both the Borgias and the Medici. And then more recently, um, actually this past weekend, I read a book on Theodoric the Great. Um, so I guess for now, I'm focused on a very narrow portion of history, so Italy in the Middle Ages. Hmm. Um, but that just happens to be because, you know, I have a background in um, Italy. My parents are both art historians from the Renaissance, so it kind of makes sense that I've gravitated towards that. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping, I really enjoy that era, but I'm hoping to maybe expand to other parts of Europe and the world in that era. Love that. So what got you started into medieval uh, Italian history? Was it a trip that you went on or was it your own just reading for pleasure that you became interested in it? So uh, my mom um, uh, introduced me to this book. Maybe I was sixth grade, seventh grade called Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett, um, which yeah. is are, are you familiar with that? I know Ken Follett. Yeah, um, Ken Follett. My, my friend's reading a big Ken Follett book. I'm not sure which one, yeah. but I know what his yeah, no, style I, is. I love him. So she introduced me to that, and that's basically, he writes four books. They're massive. They're like 1,200 pages each, and they're basically this massive, like, several family saga. Um, the first one starts in 1,000 and goes to 1,100 in this fictional little town called... called um, Kingsbridge, I believe, in England. Um, and so it really gives you a sense of the medieval world um, in England. And so I found that fascinating. And then since then, um, I mean, like I said, my, I've, the beauty of having two parents who studied um, Italian Renaissance art history is we go relatively often to Italy, which I'm very thankful for. And mm -hmm. then when we go to museums, like we are taking our good time like yeah. we, we're, we don't normally get out of a museum after spending like we usually spend about 
at least four hours at any given museum, if not more. So. Wow. It's good that you're yeah. into that and you like that. Yeah. You know, imagine if your, your parents were, you know, so yeah committed to this and you were just like, I cannot stand museums. Yeah. I mean, that's good. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think definitely when I was younger, it was, it was a bit of, bit of a pain, a lot of sitting on those museum benches and thinking about whatever, but, um, the past several times we've gone, I've really, I've really gotten into really analyzing these pieces of art. Oh man. And you probably get the, you, you get the full tour. I mean, yeah. you just stand yeah. with your parents and they give you everything. Yeah. 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 Good for you. What, uh, if someone were to go to Europe or, and go to Italy, where would you, what museum would you point them towards first? That's so difficult. Sistine Chapel, Last Judgment, or? Um, that's, that's, that's so hard. Yeah. Um, I've, yeah. I mean, I've mostly spent my time in, I would say, middle to northern Italy. Um, so... There's some museums in Florence, particularly, like the Bargello, um, which has a huge room with a whole bunch of different sculpture. And so there's particularly um, three different Davids, or two different Davids in that room, and then you can compare it to Michelangelo's David, which is... Um, is that in Rome, or is that Florence? That's Florence. That's so Florence Michelangelo's David, I don't know if it's the official, but, the, but a copy of it stands in the... Uh, next to the Palazzo Vecchio in the main piazza of Florence. And these two other ones by um, Verrocchio and Donatello um, are in the museum. So you see this immediate contrast between how to picture um, this figure of David who's just beat Goliath. Um, you know, Verrocchio is very um, playful and almost a little too playful with like the wing of the... Um, Goliath's helmet coming up through mm -hmm. his legs, like so it's like a little playful. Whereas like Michelangelo's David is very, very strong and masculine. So it's interesting to really consider the artistic choices there. Michelangelo's David is one of the most amazing. I went there and yeah. saw that, and it's it's incredible. I mean, I understand why it's one of the most famous statues in the world. But isn't there, isn't there the people say that his hands are too big, or there's a deformity in the shape of his hands maybe yeah maybe maybe something like that word but otherwise it's just in, otherwise, incredibly yeah and it's incredible that he's able to sculpt out of a single block of marble mm -hmm. something so huge and something so lifelike so that's amazing yeah and the Sistine Chapel I've been there too yeah. and that yeah. that was an incredible experience yeah. and I I love um I actually went there for the first time yesterday because my parents generally like to avoid the crowds but this past winter, I went there, and I was amazed by um, the ceiling. I mean, um, I think the part that I like most is the uh, the figure of um, Saint Bartholomew holding his skin. Yeah, which I love. Um, and yeah. I was actually got a chance to see um, in Milan this sculpture, also of Saint Bartholomew, which was pictured differently. So. Um, that keeps on popping up on my phone screen for some reason, but yeah. Well, I think it's so important for you to have this entire historical understanding of what you're looking at, because I think a lot of people go to these amazing 
museums and look at these sculptures and these paintings and yeah, they're stunning to look at, but I think it's so important to know the history too behind it. And you've got, I mean, you've got probably so much through your parents and your own reading of it to really appreciate it. Yeah. 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 I would say so. Um, all right, well, let's get to your book rec today and, and talk a little bit about what you're reading and, um, what you would recommend for our viewers. So, um, book I read over the weekend is this, that book I mentioned on Theodoric the Great. Um, it's a translation of this, um, German guy. If I'm right, this came out recently. I got this as a, um, my mom had told me that there was a new biography on Theodoric the Great that came out, so I asked her to get me this over Christmas. Um, um, and I've always heard Theodoric the Great. Um, it's, it's a name that resonates because um, if you think about the end of the Roman Empire, you think the key year is 476, and 476 is when the last emperor, um, the West, last Western emperor of Rome named... Um, Romulus is kicked out by um, this barbarian sent by the Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno, and this barbarian was named Odoacer, and he rules there for a period of time, but it's really Theodoric the Great, who's this goth, this barbarian who comes in and manages to somehow balance his gothic identity with the fact that he's controlling the remnants of the Western Roman Empire, and so he manages to toe the line between, you know, he has a separate religion than most of his Roman subjects. He is a goth, um, and most of his subjects are Roman, um, with the fact that he keeps the Roman bureaucracy and basically in all but name keeps the Western Roma, Roman Empire functioning. Hmm. So, um, a very fascinating. And how does he do that as, as an outsider? So the way he does it, so again, he, um, he had a mass control in the Eastern Roman Empire, and at some point, the Emperor of Zeno was like, I've had enough of you. You go um, and conquer this Odoacer guy so I, you can get out of my hair. And um, Theodoric manages to keep the Roman bureaucracy that had been pre-existing, um, but incorporate Gothic elements. So for example, he did not take up the title of emperor Instead, he called himself Rex King. Um, he also uh, had Gothic representatives throughout the provinces that worked with their Roman counterparts to balance, who, who would directly speak to him um, and were directly under his control so he could maintain power. Um, but I think what's even more fascinating is that, um, I mean, he. Yeah, like I said, the the bureaucracy is all Roman. The people directly under him are all Roman. And you would think, you know, this is this is a barbarian. You know, he might not know how to speak mm-hmm. uh, Greek. He might not know how to write Roman. But he somehow manages for about 33 years to maintain the Western Roman Empire, what had been the Western Roman Empire, in relative peace. And he wasn't forceful or... Uh... I'm just trying to think about how he maintained control without these skills and these abilities, these abilities that you're talking about as a, as a Gothic person coming in, um, was in it. And his reign wasn't like a forceful controlling sort of type. Well, I mean, as, as, as any emperor 
um, was in those days, you know, he, he had a couple people killed. Um, <laughs> he actually he actually killed Oda Walker with his own sword. Um, but he was um, raised in Constantinople, so he had a little bit of education. But he was, I think it was recent enough to the the collapse of the Western Roman Empire that the that that bureaucracy was still in place and it was in everyone's interest to maintain the peace. And even though he was a Goth and he was an Aryan, um, which was slightly different from the religion practiced um, by those in Rome at that time, he didn't. He never pressed his religion on anyone. He never pressed um, his Gothic heritage on anyone. He he managed to keep both groups separate and maintain this peace, and so it was in everyone's interest after so many years of um, disorder mm -hmm. to have him stay in place. That's fascinating. I mean, I'd never really, I've never even heard of this guy. And yeah. uh, it's interesting that you, you were able to read this entire book. It sounds dense. I mean, it sounds... Yeah, no, it's definitely dense. Um, but what's even more fascinating to me is, like, I was like, there's no way you can write a whole entire book on this guy. Like, he, he was very significant... Um, because right after him comes Justinian, who, in most people's minds, um, marks the start of the Middle Ages and the end of the Roman period. Um, but apparently there's a lot of sources, quite a few sources that survive. Um, there's this guy named Cassiodorus, who is his like, secretary, who wrote everything down. So we have all of his sources, and then we have also the standard number of people who are going to, you know, writing to give him praise and everything. But through that, historians, and there's multiple books on him, there's this whole world of scholarship solely devoted to Theodoric the Great, which is crazy to think, mm -hmm. like argue over how Gothic he was, how Roman he was. And I just find that fascinating, the historiography element of it. Love it. Well, thank you for the rec. I'm going to look into this figure I've yeah. never heard of. but uh... I mean, it's, it's definitely... Like you said, it's it's definitely dense. You have to balance it. Yep. Um, the way I've, I've I've balanced it is, you know, I balance reading this with something which I would um, describe more as like a story, like something like lighter, like a like a Middle March or yeah, some sort of nineteenth century novel. But yeah, well, good stuff. And uh, and Finn, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for yeah. chatting. Yeah. It's uh, good to learn a little bit more about you. I didn't know your parents were art historians, so that's. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm sort of jealous that you get, you know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your senior year, and thanks for being yeah. on the podcast. I will. I will. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course.